Hello, and you are listening to Eco Justice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles, a project of SoCal 350 Climate Action. Our show presents environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame featuring voices not necessarily heard on mainstream media. Welcome. I am Jessica Aldridge. On today's show, we are discussing rewilding the human family, staying interconnected in modern times with host Carrie Kim, who will be interviewing guest Chris Morosky, co-founder of Wisdom Keeper School. They discuss the role of ancestral wisdom and ancient skills to balance our modern lifestyle and stir up a new way of being human. Chris Morosky is a wildlife biologist with over 35 years of teaching experience. He is considered one of the top Stone Age skills experts in the U.S. and is the co-founder of the Wisdom Keeper School, which seeks to inspire contemporary humans to create regenerative lifestyles and build communities which infuse modern life with the wisdom of our ancestors. Chris has lived most of the past 30-plus years in the wilderness and small communities of British Columbia, Idaho, and Utah. He has homesteaded along the Snake River in the Pacific Northwest, the most remote mail route in the lower 48 states. He has led Stone Age expeditions and worked in the most dangerous job in the world, single-stem logging. Thank you for tuning into Eco Justice Radio and our show, Rewilding the Human Family, staying interconnected in modern times, with host Carrie Kim and our guest, Chris Morosky. Aloha, my name is Carrie Kim, and we are thankful to have you listeners back with us. We are coming to you from the ancestral lands of the Tongva. We would like to honor the Tongva for all that they have kept and preserved here as far as their wisdom traditions and cultural aspects, as well as their cosmological view. We live in unprecedented times, both tumultuous and auspicious. Technological advancements continue accelerating at breakneck speed with AI, 5G, biotech, and crypto impacting how we live and interact more to come. Technology and modernity comes with a certain expense to what distinguishes us as human. Technology is impacting our health, our sanity and solace, our need for privacy and community, and the world's ecosystems at large for better or worse. Emerging from the lockdowns of 2020, humanity would do well to contemplate our times and our direction. What makes for a meaningful, purposeful life? How might we contribute to the future course of the entire planet? Here to address some of these pertinent questions of the day and our times is Chris Morasky, whom we welcome. He is the co-director of the Wisdom Keeper School and one of the foremost teachers of Stone Age skills on this continent. Welcome, Chris. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to be here. You've lived an extraordinary life connected to nature in remote environs for pretty much most of your entire life, I guess. Well, Maybe not the entire life, but a great majority of it. (laughs) So for roughly 20 years, you didn't buy meat or fish from a store, foraged, and also assuming that you hunted to sustain yourself instead. Six of those years you spent living in a teepee. And you have said that children are now presented with a dizzying future that neither public nor private schools prepare them for. And after witnessing the ups and downs of homeschooling in 2020, perhaps homeschooling is also not the sole answer. 
What do you feel would prepare children for the future? That is such a good question. And I cannot provide a concise answer, but I think (laughs) that that's part of the challenge that we face in Western society is that often we're looking for answers. We're looking for something that is solid and fixed and unmoving that we can rely upon. Mm -hmm. And that ship has sailed. You know, that Mm -hmm. is that's indigenous living. If you want something stable and unchanging, that is an an approach to it. Mm -hmm. But we as a society made the decision that we're going to become creators. We're going to modify our environment. We're going to chase down artificial intelligence. And so the world is moving so quickly now that we need to cultivate flexibility and understand that whatever is working for us today, Mm -hmm. the environment is going to be shifting. So maybe it won't work for us tomorrow. But it does bring us into some principles that we should embrace, I think, if we're going to continue down this road of high technology. That gets us into how does nature work? Mm -hmm. And so one of the basics of that, um, and we can look at permaculture for a lot of ways in which they have sort of uh, sifted through the things that are natural principles and then applied that into uh, various systems, particularly farming, Mm -hmm. is there's no waste. Everything is a closed loop and everything is deeply interconnected. And so when we're looking at how do we educate our children so that they are prepared for the future and also so that they are co-creating a future that works for everyone that we're all happy about and leads us into joy and peace and harmony and abundance they're going to need to cultivate that flexibility. They're going to need to be seeking cooperation. They're also going to need to influence the way that technology is developed so that all of our technology is also interconnected with nature and with natural principles. You know, I think that we really need to start looking at all of our technology as being alive Mm -hmm. is one thing. So how do you propose that nature would be integrated with the technology? So I was just in Montana and I was at a place uh, in Southeast Montana in a national forest there called Black's Pond. Mm -hmm. And there were, uh, there were probably 50 different species of birds that were living in this uh, little area that I could access, that I could hear and see from where I set up my camp. And quite often at any given time, there would be maybe six different bird species that were calling. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, the usual characters that you would tend to find around a pond that has cattails. There's red-winged blackbirds and in that area, brewers, blackbirds. And there's, you know, a variety of different species and they're they're all talking. Mm -hmm. And as I'm listening to what they are saying, it's so clear that they're talking to each other and they're listening to each other. Mm -hmm. And there is space that is given for each one to speak. And it's cooperative. There's a harmony to it. Each place has a symphony Mm -hmm. of instruments that are playing when you add in the the wind and the the kinds of uh, interactions that you have with the different plants there, the spacing of everything. Looking at it, And being in a place like that, 
all of the birds are continuously saying, hey, I got this really awesome place here. And also, by the way, I'm a really fabulous <laughs> dude and you should come <laughs> over and check it out. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but at the same time, at the same time, they're also continuously saying it's all good. Mm -hmm. It's all clear. Everything is safe. And if it's not, if a predator moves through, then everybody talks about that and everybody knows there's nothing that is hidden. There is nothing that is intentionally disregarding or ignoring all of this other stimulus. It's all connected. Right. And they don't when have I'm, personal agendas. Yeah. Uh, when I'm down here in Los Angeles, that's one of the greatest challenges that I face is that everybody is trying to ignore the excessiveness of the stimulus. Mm -hmm. So we've got the car noises, we've got the refrigerator, we've got the television, we've got people on their cell phones, we've got the, the signs, the lights, the, all of these different things. And everything is competing for one's attention mm -hmm. or ignoring everything else, but it's definitely not connected. It's mm -hmm. definitely not harmonious and it's definitely not sending out a continuous, it's all good signal. Right probably the opposite. And that's, that's what would happen. That's what would happen if, if technology was actually really working well in an interconnected way. So something more like a mycelial network, similar to that, or like the bird. Yeah. About. Yeah. Yeah. A mycelial network is another good way of, of looking at how nature cooperates and connects always sharing information, sharing nutrients, resources, you know, right. It's cooperative. Nature is cooperative. Darwin actually understood that. And then because of what was going on in uh, the social dynamics of his time, it was twisted around into social Darwinism and survival of the fittest. But that's actually not what nature is like. Nature is not all of these animals fighting with each other all right. of the time. Mm -hmm. And Hollywood does a terrible job of portraying what it's really like. You know, sure. nature is actually to so many people, I think, that are carrying this continuous level of stress inside of them because there's so much stimulus that them, they're bombarded with. Nature is boring, mm -hmm. but it's actually deeply, deeply peaceful and that is what our species is designed for. We're designed for, for connection and we're designed for peace and relaxation and contentment virtually all of the time. Right. Well, I think it's, you know, the pandemic pointed that out for a lot of people because it forced a lot of people into a certain kind of stillness or a certain kind of quietude, just not having as many distractions, the existential distractions of modern life. And many people were uncomfortable with that. And others were yes. not. Others who were already yeah. kind of living that sort of lifestyle, it was a blessing to have that right. time, that break. But, you know, I want to talk about you were living in uh, British Columbia alongside mm -hmm. a clear running stream that you could drink from. And then yes. you packed it all up, sold off your belongings and headed to live in L.A. for a time. And you had said that for the better part of your life, that cities were not for you. What did the city teach you that you couldn't learn in nature? So much. What I realized when I was living in British Columbia, where I was in a location that gets four feet of snowpack every winter, mm -hmm. and there's always something that nature is saying, hey, you better take care of that. So mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time in reaction. And that's not so much really about what nature is there as much as that's me. 
it's a positive characteristic and it's also <laughs> a negative at the same time to be you right. know to be it's in your response asset and your liability. a lot of the time <laughs> right yeah and so i was in response a lot and i was i was always kind of busy i was always taking care of things and putting fires out mm-hmm. and uh you know you have plan ahead to make sure that you get enough firewood to be warm through the winter and then there's the gardening and then there's the replanting of the garden because you know there was a snowfall that came in june and there's there's things like that and i started thinking about what kind of a person chooses to live in a place where things are hard where Mm -hmm. things require a certain high level of competence in order to do well there Mm -hmm. and i realized that i was priding myself with being able to navigate things relatively well in a difficult place. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, what kind of a person chooses to live in a place where it's 80 degrees and sunny almost every single day? (laughs) You know, <laughs> that's uh, an old, different kind of an impression. Though. It can, be, it can yeah, be. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I realized that I had had some real limitations in my way of thinking, in my way of being. Mm. And that living stone age, living primitively. And I don't see that as a negative thing. Primitive comes from prime, uh, meaning to come first and living very close to nature. That wasn't much of a learning curve for me for where I was at that time in my life. And the big learning curve was to move down with 12 million people and try to see how to hold my center and to thrive and to understand being in a place like that. And so coming down into the city, the first thing that I found was I moved onto Pacific Coast Highway in the city of Torrance uh, down in in Southern uh, Los Angeles. But I was right on PCH Mm -hmm. and I moved into a condominium complex with over 400 units. (laughs) And the very first day and night, I heard like 17 sirens during that stretch of time. Mm -hmm. And every time I heard one go by, you know, it would call me to attention because it's alarming. Startling, yeah. Where I you know, where I had been living, nobody hears sirens, there are no sirens. And it would wake me up out of my sleep every time a siren would go off going Mm -hmm. down the street. And Mm -hmm. so I had to retrain my understanding of what that symbol means, right? You know, what that stimulus is about. And so that brought me into a practice of going through all of my muscles that I've tensed up in agitation, reaction to that, and intentionally relax all of those muscles, relax my thinking, and then eventually shift my understanding of what this stimulus means. And being in Los Angeles has been a deep practice of non-judgment because I could have so much judgment about what's going on here. There's a lot of things that are about the lifestyle. You know, it's a, it's this massive city where we don't grow anything pretty much. All we grow is people and they don't taste good. <laughs> and real estate. You're not supposed moment. to eat that. <laughs> <laughs> McMansions, they're very abundant here. Right. Yeah. And so it's been a practice of being in non judgment. And then it's been a practice of looking at like what is working well here and what isn't working well. And one of the really interesting things for me is that now I've been spending time going back into these really deep wilderness places. 
So I've been back in, in Montana in places where nobody gets there. You know, I'm in, I'm walking through areas where probably another human hasn't been there for a hundred years. And while I'm out there and I'm there by myself, I have the reflection of who does this and what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at, you know, I'm doing a lot of things that I used to do, but it's different now. I'm a different person. I'm sure having been in the city and gone back. Mm-hmm. In 2018, the UN reported that 55% of the world's population uh, was living in urban areas. And the figure was already projected to increase to 68% by 2050, with over 90% of that increase taking place in Asia and Africa. 82%, and this was in 2018, of North Americans were already living in urban regions. Climate change, of course, is forcing people to migrate from rural to urban areas. We've seen that in many, many countries around the world. But how do we reconcile living in the city with nature? Is a truly nature-connected life in the city possible or is that an oxymoron i think we need to invite nature into our cities right now it is an oxymoron right now we're just not doing it but we can we need to make our cities green and when our cities are green and flourishing i mean what a great place to grow plants there's way more carbon dioxide it's warmer there's all kinds of surface areas and there's so much enriched wastewater that we're right now just shunting off to the oceans and uh, and we should be recycling all of this. We have everything that we need. Mm-hmm. We're just needing to apply the will. Well, it seems to, you know, the thing is we have all of these remod- home remodeling shows and everything. I always wonder about that because everything is focused on the home, on the structure and not what is outside of the structure. And that's valued um, much more at a premium than actually being outdoors. One of the things the pandemic, I think, forced upon a lot of people is the realization that I value the outdoors. I don't want to spend my lifetime indoors. And so that I think heightened that for a lot of people. But one of the main things we need to deal with here is, you know, structures, how we live, how much space is actually required to live, because that is a big problem here. There is a problem here because people don't know how to share. (laughs) and they want more than they need yeah so so that greed is what takes us down what were you right there we need to take a quick break and then we'll be right back okay hey listeners quick break here we hope that you are enjoying eco justice radio we air every friday at 3 p.m on kpfk los angeles stay connected by subscribing to eco justice radio on all major podcast apps and visit our website ecojusticeradio.org check out previous shows and guests and well get connected with us on social media Today, you are listening to Rewilding the Human Family, Staying Interconnected in Modern Times, with host Carrie Kim and guest Chris Morosky, co-founder of Wisdom Keepers School. We were talking about wilderness. We were talking about you, kind of the balance of you were in the city, then you've gone back to places that we would call the wild or wilderness. And we, you and I had shared about, so there are some maybe inherent misunderstandings about the word wilderness. And I wonder if you would share what you feel are some of the the issues with the word. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of issues that I see with this concept of rewilding and wild and wilderness. 
you know, we have the connotations around a wild child, my kids acting wild, and it means that they're unruly, they lack self-discipline, they're disconnected from everything else, they're causing problems, they're creating disharmony. And we have the concepts of wilderness being places where humans are absent. Mm -hmm. And what we really need is an understanding that humans for virtually the entire time that we've been on two legs have been living as an integral part of nature mm-hmm. that we actually uh, have the, the ability to do very good things in nature. Because I think that one of the most unique qualities about humans is our ability to connect with and to have empathy with all kinds of beings. You know, if you look at the languages of of indigenous people all over the world, they are referring to the people as being humans and non-humans. It's everything is community Mm -hmm. and something that as we got into agriculture and we started doing a lot of harm to the planet and we started actively hurting those members of our community, the ones that we used to walk around saying, I love you tree, I love you flower, I love you this, I love you that. And instead we're clearing land and we're, we're doing things that are out of that harmony, stockpiling. Then you start to act superior, wouldn't you say? Yeah. And nobody wants to tell your kids that. Nobody wants to say to your kids like, oh, yeah, yeah, me and the other guys, like we went out and we really caused a lot of damage. You know, those <laughs> those those other two leggeds that are over there that used to be our friends. Well, they're not really our friends anymore because we went over there and we raided and we stole from them and mm-hmm. we killed some of them. Mm-hmm. And so we start making up stories. Mm-hmm. And we have stories to say that those people are different from us. And so it's okay. They're not good people. And, and we're actually superior to all of these other kinds of beings. And so it's okay. There's all of these moral justifications, which are just fanciful stories. And over 10,000 years, we believe it. We as a society believe these lies that just keep being retold. It's the nature of being human. Whatever you're born into is what you grow up thinking is right and normal and good. Well, it's definitely a distortion. I mean, it's not a, it's not a foregone conclusion that even someone just going out into what we call the wilderness is automatically in harmony because we know there are people who aren't without any kind of consciousness. Right. Or, you know, it's not, it's not a, a guarantee either, uh, but it is an opportunity. Yeah, you're, yeah. You're an opportunity. It's an, an opportunity, I would say, to remember. You mentioned Mm -hmm. that humanity is not going to go backwards and live like the ancients. And that, you know, you and I had spoken a long time ago and you had said you didn't anticipate that many people would be willing to give up certain conveniences, for example, the cell phones or their GPS or Wi-Fi. What's the possibility of genuinely merging ancient and modern life? today. Mm, yeah, well, I, I will say that I've lived in a cave, and it's not that great. <laughs> <laughs> overrated. <laughs> it's totally overrated. Yeah. I mean, maybe I wasn't in a five star cave. Maybe that was the problem. <laughs> it's like a two star cave. What was overrated about it, though? Was it the isolation or what? I mean, what was overrated? <sighs> It's nice to sleep on something that's cushy, you know. (laughs) 
<laughs> climate control is nice. Uh, a refrigerator <laughs> is nice. Being able to pick up a phone and connect with somebody across the world is is nice. All of these things are wonderful. And all of these things have costs. So there's impact and there's intention. And both of those really need to be looked at. Mm-hmm. We have a tremendous amount of unraveling and reweaving to do to sort through all of the things that are out of balance, that are part of the disharmony that's happening in our world. Can we integrate technology with humanity in a way that actually works? We can, we absolutely can, but you know, we can't be we can't be digging up lithium someplace where people are going through incredible suffering and they're destroying their environment. And, uh, and then we're like, Hey, cool. Check out my new iPhone. Right. It's everything has impact. That's right. Everything same with electric is. vehicles. I mean, it's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so one of the biggest problems that I see with society today, not as big as the fact that we've forgotten how to care is that we're moving too fast. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know Elon Musk went around and talked with people who are working on artificial intelligence a while back and said, Hey, like we have no idea once a genie's out of the bottle how to put it back. Right. You know, once it acquires sentience and starts writing its own programs, mm-hmm. and you know, most of the problems we'll run into initially are with dumb AI. And so what are we gonna do when we don't have any idea whatsoever how to deal with something that is so much faster at processing and has so much more storage capability around information can just do so much more is is basically better at everything humans do. How are we going to, how are we going to deal with that if it starts doing something that's really, really not good for the world? Right. Or if it's Um, in the hands of people who don't really have that intention in mind. Yeah. Which of course it will be initially, initially it's going to be used for greed because that's what drives capitalism. That's, that's where the money is. And, and everybody said, no, no, we're not going to slow things down. We're going to just stumble forwards as fast as we can, because when you're working with things that are happening at an exponential level, being like two steps ahead translates to being millions or billions of dollars ahead. It translates to cornering the market. It's, it's that big. We have to cooperate, we have to care, and we have to slow things down. And what? how are you cultivating that with the youth and the children that you're working with? You have mentorship programs, you have mm-hmm. uh, workshops with um, families and their children. Tell me how you kind of go about that with children to inculcate these things that you're speaking of. Well, I think that the biggest thing to focus on initially is caring and if you don't know, if you're just walking through and you've been brought up in this world where there are sayings like take only photographs and leave only footprints, then you understand nature is sort of like something outside of you. It's a museum and you can walk down the trail and be an interested bystander like, oh, that's lovely. Look at that tree. Oh, mm-hmm. and this is beautiful over here. Right. But you're not actually connecting with. So I want the kids to feel their connection to nature. You know, like today we were sitting under this oak tree, this huge, beautiful live oak tree, and there's others all around. And I talked about just imagine, because what we do with our imagination is just so powerful. 
imagine if you grew up here. Imagine if you grew up in this place and you saw all of these different trees on a regular basis, multiple times through the year, you know, semi-nomadic people. So they're not always in the same place, but you come back and you see, look at how you've grown. Look at what the wind's done. Maybe a branch broke off over here. Look at how you are in this time of the year, in this season. Look at how you are in relationship with all of these other things. And I, I name things all the time. People, the kids will be like, oh, look, I found a bug. Do you know who this bug is? And I'm going to be like, yeah, that's Tina. That's <laughs> Tina the bug. You know, and I was yeah. like, okay, so look here. Now imagine that this is not just a coast live oak tree because it isn't. It's an individual, and yet it is also a species. So, you know, this is Jeffrey, that's Franklin, that's Samantha, (laughs) this is Jamal. And if you go underneath and you feel their shade, Mm -hmm. and then in the fall, you're receiving the acorns that have fallen, and then you're cracking them open and mashing them into a flower, and you're running water through them and making an acorn soup, then on a physical level, you become part of that tree. That tree becomes part of you. And on an emotional and mental level, you become more a part of this landscape. It matters to you. You start to have a feeling. Yeah, yeah. It's these relationships that I really want these kids to connect with. Your website asks viewers whether they believe the only way they could live more naturally might require moving out of the city to a faraway corner of the wilderness. Do you think that this is essential for people to actually remember that they are nature itself? No, definitely not. Nature Some is. Relieved. Some people are relieved <laughs> to hear that, but others of us are like, no, right. I'm going. <laughs> right, right. You know, nature is all around us. We are nature, everything is nature. However, what we have happening in cities is we have nature and sort of modified nature technology that is moving in very disconnected ways. And that is, I think, inherently at a certain level, it's disturbing. Mm -hmm. It causes people to walk around with a low level of stress. Well, their nervous systems, right, are not regulating as easily with nature in the city. Right. Like here, uh, I'm in Glendale right now, and sometimes I have two different species of birds that are trying to talk over all of the other noise that's going on. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, you know, there's not much of anybody who's talking that isn't on two legs or some kind of a machine. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not getting that it's all good. It's all clear kind of a signal constantly being fed into my nervous system, telling me, go ahead and relax. It's all good. What we need to do if we're still going to be in our cities at this time period in humanity before we really get this down is apply a lot of consciousness in the way in which we are engaging with nature and disengaging from technology. Well, it feels also without having bringing back the biodiversity that was once here. Mm-hmm. That it's ever more difficult, you know, without it's easy to have an Anthropocene attitude if we outnumber what we see for the most part uh, on a day-to-day basis, you know, we become the, the prime mover in life. Whereas if you are in a natural setting where you really truly are outnumbered, I remember being in the Amazon and being just thrilled at being completely feeling like a microscopic flea in an Amazonian right. rainforest. 
and everything else right. was taking precedence. Everything else was foregrounded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there is a good way. Uh, there's a cool little life hack, we'll call it, because it's a buzzword that you, that you could do. Take away the computer. While, <laughs> right. While you're in the city, how do you really feel connected with nature? Definitely a sit spot and definitely like deep introspective being in one place and really going deep into whatever natural tree that's growing along the side of the street, the the weeds that are growing up out of your flower pot, the mockingbird that's calling, whatever. But to go either micro or macro on this and, uh, you know, the microcosm is the macrocosm and a lot of what's going on in our cities is kind of in the middle. And the middle is where everything's really confusing. Mm -hmm. But if you can look up into the sky and you can see much larger weather patterns and you can see the way that the moon is moving or appears to be moving in relationship with with the earth turning, and you can track that these really big forces are taking place, you can still feel very small Mm -hmm. as to who you are and your value within nature. Because a, an honest evaluation is that humans, you know, as an individual, I'm not important, but I'm part of something that's really important. Yeah. Part of the orchestra and, instead of being, the, you know, the conductor all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And then to go micro, you know, you can do that with a handful of sand. You can do that by getting, you know, you can purchase now I've got uh, that I bring out when I'm with the kids a little tiny microscope, well, I don't know, magnifier, but it's a 40 power little item. And anything that I can put in my hand, Mm. we can all see really, really close up. That's amazing. That's a really good, yeah. And then, you know, then we get to see like, wow, at this micro level, things are actually pretty tight. Things are actually working together with a lot of harmony. And we can see these relationships as we're looking at you know, the cell structure and the veins and the leaf of a plant or the way that a flower comes out and we can look at the pistils and stamens and we can, we can see that beauty that is just so perfectly formed. Well, you're giving them focus, right? This is another Mm -hmm. thing. Just having that ability, because that is a skill to be able to focus and pay attention to something. Yeah. For an longer period of time you know, for some, you know you have studied with various um with natives of various nations including uh, lakota shoshone arapaho crow blackfeet and seri and i haven't heard the mention of specific names of mentors or teachers and i wonder given that the last of a certain breed of indigenous elders are now dying do you feel a debt to indigenous peoples oh absolutely like, You know, one of the things that happened with me is that I grew up in this nuclear family, which, you know, nuclear is explosive. I don't know why we thought that was a good idea. I don't know where that joke comes from. I know it's not very welcome. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, there was mom and dad, my brother, that was us. Uh And then sometimes we would get together with the larger family. And then there was an aunt and an uncle and a cousin. and, And that was it, really. We didn't have a larger community or larger family. Mm-hmm. And it's part of what makes it so strange, I think, to me now that I've spent time with some Native peoples and understand more of how Indigenous people, like in many places all over the world, like they have this very expansive concept of family. And I didn't growing up. 
And so when I was with uh, the Walks Over Ice family, and they are a crow, Mm-hmm. And uh, Lorena May walks over ice. She's the old woman there. And she said, uh, hey, Chris, you know, you should come by on Saturday. You know, the family's getting together. And I'm like, OK, great. You know, and I'm thinking <laughs> six people. I don't know. And I, sh- <laughs> you know, I show up and there's like 50 people there and they're all family. And it's not about blood relationship even. Right. You know, there are people who are not blood relations and they were still family. And it really shifted my understanding of who I am and who I want to be and what is felt in my heart, right and normal and good, but was different from what I was born into. Part of that unraveling and reweaving. A redefining of family, perhaps. But we're going to take another short break right here and come back. Hey, listeners, quick break here. We hope that you are enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We air every Friday at 3 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles. Be sure to stay connected with us. Subscribe to Eco Justice Radio on all major podcast apps. Visit our website at ecojusticeradio.org if you want to listen to some of our previous shows and guests. And always get connected with us on social media. Today, you're listening to Rewilding the Human Family, Staying Interconnected in Modern Times, with host Carrie Kim and guest Chris Moraski, co-founder of Wisdom Keepers School. You know, what do you feel that humanity owes to the indigenous peoples of the world, their cultural traditions, their cosmological views now? What do we owe to the indigenous people of the world? We owe healing. Mm. And it's not healing because, I mean, it is healing because it's the right thing to do, but it's also healing because it's the only way that things actually work. You know, like trauma perpetuates trauma, hurt people, hurt people. We have the colonizers who have come over from Europe because they have experienced 10,000 years worth of trauma. Their indigenous people have been displaced and people have forgotten about how to be in a heartfelt, vulnerable, loving relationship with all of the beings and energies of their place. And they keep telling these stories to their children over and over again about how it's okay because these are not like us and we're better than those and we have dominion over that. All of it comes down to healing. So it is healing to the indigenous people and it is healing to everyone else because everyone is hurting now. And how does that all parse out? Like, Let's not get into the trauma Olympics. Everyone needs healing and it's going to look different for different people. But there are some common denominations, which are we want to be heard. We want to feel safe. You know, we we want to believe, know that other people are our friends. You know, there's a lot of indigenous languages that they don't even have the, the word stranger is not part of the vocabulary. And so we need to, again, returning back to natural principles, well, the original uh, keepers of those natural principles are all of the indigenous peoples. What should have happened when the first Europeans came over is they should have gone to, if, and perhaps they would have if they weren't so traumatized themselves, you know, sometimes the bullied becomes the bully. And uh, we see that on playgrounds. We should have gone up to the indigenous people and said, hey, we're new here and you are in relationship with this place. How does it sing? 
can you teach us the symphony of this place? You have to start out as children. You have to start out with the humility to be willing to learn how it all works. And not know, know, I think that's one of the other things that's really just a a characteristic of, of sort of North American civilization is always thinking that we know or that we know better. Yeah. And growing up as a, as a white male, I believed that that was my responsibility. You know, I'm supposed to have all of the answers. Mm. I'm supposed to ask the girl out. I'm supposed to know things that I can't possibly know. I'm supposed to be competent to things that I can't possibly be competent at. And so it just turns people like me into assholes. I've been trying to take my medication, that (laughs) anti-asshole medication. (laughs) Well, I think uh, um, competence is overvalued in this society. And there's not a lot of emphasis placed on learning and the humility of learning and Mm. also not knowing that openness to being able to be taught. There's many things that need to change, you know, kind of points back to the education system too. I wanted to diverge a little bit to the pandemic and I'm wondering, you know, the the pandemic was an incredible pattern interrupt for the world and reminded us globally about the unpredictable nature and impermanence of life. But it, it offered us an immense opportunity to reflect upon our lifestyles, the value of freedom, nature. And I'm wondering if the pandemic highlighted anything in particular for you. Yeah, it really did. When it first happened, I was actually really excited for two different reasons. (laughs) (laughs) The one reason is because I'm a wildlife biologist. I've been sort of waiting for a pandemic for a long time. It's only been a matter of time. And I've actually been really surprised that we haven't had something really big before this time. Right. You know, and if you look at SARS and MERS and Ebola and avian bird flus, you know, there's been a bunch of things that sort of missed us, but had the potential, had they gotten just a little bit sideways, a little different from that Mm -hmm. to have been really big. Ebola is 50% death rate on that. Yeah, these are these are like super serious. And Mm so um, when it became clear that this one was not going to be nearly that lethal. We're going to lose some people. It's going to be sad. It's going to disrupt life, Mm -hmm. but it's a wake-up call. It's an opportunity. And Mm -hmm. as this rolls out, it's going to highlight all of the potholes that are in the road already. Mm -hmm. The things that are already not working are going to not work even more. And it'll give us, you know, because they're highlighted, we can be like, oh yeah, let's work together. We're all in this. Let's focus Mm -hmm. on where the problems are and let's fix this so that the next time a pandemic hits, things are going to be handled better. And then just in general, we can, uh, we can up-level some of the inequalities that are taking place. Well, it definitely kind of brought everything to the forefront, whether or not the changes that people underwent during the pandemic sustained themselves, I think it remains to be seen because mm. even as many of us had great shifts and revelations during the pandemic, others are just happy to go back to normal and would wish for any, you know, that's their greatest wish is just everything go back to normal, but it wasn't normal to begin with. Um, You know, the average person maybe has little to no idea that we're undergoing the sixth grade extinction. Mm -hmm. And it's not Mm -hmm. uncommon these days to find people or, you know, even to go into like some kind of a business and you find 
they choose fake plants over real plants. What are your thoughts about people choosing a simulation of nature or virtual nature over nature as it is? Well, we've, we've hijacked our biology. You know, technology is so good at that to find ways in which to insert something that is not natural, but it checks off the boxes of convenience, cheapness, and Someone uh, off of it. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And, uh, or it's, or it's that sort of technology that just gets us all revved up because we're in a fight or flight kind of a thing. You know, a lot of our technology is like that. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's where we need to bring our consciousness to bear upon what it is that we are really wanting to experience in life. And I think it's good for people to actually write a list. What is it that you really want? Just foundationally, you know, not, not, not down to the details of, I want to, you know, I want to test but you know, the big ones, the big ones, like, what is it? Even if you take out all of the stuff, but what is it that you really, really deeply want? What is going to make for a meaningful life for you? Mm-hmm. And it's going to be things like, I want to be happy, you know, a lot of the time. I want to have really good friends. I want to feel safe. I want to feel like I'm contributing something. I want to be helping to uh, increase stability and abundance and diversity within the environments where I live. I want to be deeply connected to the landscape where I live. You know, these kinds of things. And, you know, your list is your list, but look at it, write it down, and then see if the technology that you're utilizing is actually doing that. You know, I talk with the kids a lot about whether we're on a destination, whether we're living a destination or whether we're just on a journey. And so, you know, today we hiked out to a campground and so we had a destination and I called everybody in and I'm like, all right, so this is dangerous now. We have a destination Mm -hmm. and there's no guarantees like we might never get there. We could be halfway and aliens come down and suck us all up. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and then what, you know, like you wasted half the hike mm-hmm. and that was the last time that you had. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we really should be evaluating consciously. What am I doing? And is it actually checking off things that are on my list? Because, you know, the endless scrolling through uh, social media is probably not. Well, we know that a lot of technology is addicting and it's also designed to be addicting. Yes. Is how, you know, revenue dollars are made and so forth. But, But it is all about the balance because, as you said, you know, I like my GPS as much as anyone else in certain scenarios, you know, yes. but, it, but I also know that the value, I don't want to see nature go away. You know, I'm definitely, yeah. um, you know, the connection to nature is essential, fundamental. Your workshops focus on awakening instincts, ancient skills, and deep nature connection to more uh, fully understand who we are, why we're here, and where we're where we could be headed. So, where do you see humanity headed? I love being alive at this time, <laughs> and and it is it's the most dramatic time in the history of humanity. We are at the cliff, and collectively, we've made a decision that we are going over. 
And so there's only <laughs> there's only two ways this is going to go. <laughs> you know, either we crash into a heap at the bottom or we sprout wings on the way down. Mm-hmm. So what do I expect? Well, if I were to just look at the data, I would say we're going to crash. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, tell the people that you love that you love them because you might not live a full life. Mm-hmm. However, we do have the ability to thread a needle and, you know, we're, none of us are individuals to begin with, you know, we're like 40 trillion cells. Half of those cells are not us. They don't have our DNA. And then we're all very specialized with, you know, pacemaker cells and um, skin cells and white blood cells. And, you know, we've got all of these different parts of us that together form a community that we refer to as me. Mm-hmm. But even that isn't accurate because you can't live without all of the other connections. So really, we need to get into um, a way of understanding that we are one part of a much bigger community. Mm-hmm. In indigenous communities, typically, there would be this, you know, there's no secrets. There's just this depth of connection where a lot of languages, um, there's no words for I or me or mine. It's very much we consciousness. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that when you have 8 billion people on the planet? We have levels of connectivity, which are just at the bare edge of bringing us into this understanding that I am as a cell within a larger organism mm-hmm. and that I have a role as that individual cell within the larger organism the larger mm-hmm. organism being the Gaia, the planet, all of humanity, different ways of looking at that, but mm-hmm. just one part of something that is much bigger. Mm-hmm. I don't matter, but I belong to something that really matters. Mm-hmm. And how are we going to get to that? You know, if we, if, uh, if everybody gets the neural link and we, <laughs> you know, we have access instantaneously when you run into someone and this is somebody who is a complete stranger, but immediately you can download all of their experiences, their thoughts, their, the, their, the shoes that they have walked in from there to here. I mean, could you not love that person? If you know that person, if you understand what they've gone through, mm-hmm. perhaps, mm-hmm. But I think that if humanity is really committed to integrating with technology, that is the attitude, that's the understanding that we will have to have, that each of us is one cell in a much larger organism. Everyone has value and and the purpose in being here and gifts to share, as you've also said. One of my mentors, uh, author and cultural activist, Stephen Jenkinson, has said that this is the first generation where parents should actually be teaching their children to want less versus more, to be contented with less versus more, because it always historically has been parents always wanted more for their children than they had. But this is maybe now we need to reverse thrust that. Do you, so you agree with that? For the planet and the species to continue for not just our species, but- Um yeah, I think, you know, I look at a lot of, again, old, old traditions, and there's so much ego dismissal, there are specific practices in place to dismiss the ego so that one person doesn't start thinking that they deserve more, or that they are better than others. 
Mm-hmm. And this, you know, I deserve this thing because I can grab it and I can hold on to it. And I deserve that because, well, you're not as capable or as smart or as whatever. And so therefore I must be the one who deserves more. And up until fairly recently, it's always been to a large extent, there's one pie. And if you're sharing all of the pieces out, then, you know, like, everybody gets less um, by sharing, you know, certainly not across the board and, and, you know, lots of examples where cooperation always was better. Mm -hmm. But we are in a a time period where everything connected with technology is moving at an exponential level of growth. Mm -hmm. And so now uniquely cooperating actually works out best, even for the people who are the richest people on the planet right now. Everyone can up-level, but we're all going to suffer a bit initially while we're working through all of this. Mm-hmm. But we won't destroy ourselves if we can learn to care and to cooperate. Mm-hmm. Well, and we should slow things down, too. Right. Well, that's the important part, right? I mean, with wealth concentrated in the hands of the few, it seems that what we really need is also to re- redefine what is wealth in the first place. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, like not everybody should have an iPhone. Maybe nobody should have an iPhone or maybe it should be, maybe it should be used for research purposes right now. Um, And uh, yeah, it's, we have to look honestly at um, the value of every kind of being on this planet and how are all of these beings um, how are they doing? You know, are they thriving? Are they, are their populations amazing and they're living in intact ecosystems or do we need to do something in order to support and bring more vibrancy and health and diversity to those places? Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, if everybody has an iPhone, but we've, we've lost 10% more species on the planet, um, eventually, you know, eventually we'll get to the point where our hearts will hurt so much that it won't matter that we have iPhones. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, we think of the iPhone, what we think, I just think of the data. I think of the amount of um, data that's just floating out there and all the things that people upload and just the immensity of that, you know, I'm sure you've probably seen the, um, I can't remember the movie, but kind of it was talking about social media and just even with crypto, you know, how much how much storage is needed and how much energy that requires. Right. To do mining. You know, it's 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 there's a lot of questions, everything you kind of have to trace it forwards and back and going back to kind of the seven generations, just like the indigenous peoples, many of them. Yeah. Yeah. Really tracing it generationally. Is this going to work in this many generations forward or not? What's, what's yeah, so we need to slow things down enough so that we don't lose anything that we're going to really regret. Mm-hmm. You know, Chris, could you share, you know, you have so many, uh, so much wisdom and also just this, the skills and just your life path, what it has been. There's so much you have to offer the youth and just children. And if you could share how people can be in contact with you, how some people can also, listeners may want to um, bring their children to some of your programs. So if you could share the ways they can reach you. 
Yes, uh, thank you. I've got a summer camp coming up here in uh, in mid and late July up under the ancient sequoia trees family camp. People can go to www.wisdomkeepers.us because it's all about us. And, <laughs> and they, can, uh, they can contact me there. Okay, great. Thank you so much for joining the show. And thank you for really, you know, you uphold something very special, just the way you've lived your life, because you have been, you have lived a life deeply connected to nature. And now you're kind of bridging that gap, you know, between, um, you know, teaching in the cities, which is important because you're bringing people back to, to nature and children and the youth, especially. So thank you for that service. Mm. Thank you so much. Um, It is my pleasure. And uh, it's been so enjoyable chatting with you this evening. Yeah, good to see you again. Thank you. Thank you to our guest today, Chris Morosky, and thank you to our listeners for joining us. This has been Rewilding the Human Family, Staying Interconnected in Modern Times. Please remember to connect with us on social media. You can find us at EcoJustice Radio, SoCal 350, and Adventures in Waste. If you like what you heard and you want others to be informed, you know what to do. Subscribe to that podcast. Share the episodes. We got to get that information out there, right? Share the knowledge. And help us continue our efforts by making a donation to the show at EcoJusticeRadio.org. You have been listening to Eco-Justice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles. A project of SoCal 350, the show can be found at kpfk.org, all major podcast apps, and at ecojusticeradio.org. Created by Mark and J.P. Morris, executive producer Jack Guy, producer and co-host Jessica Aldridge, co-host Carrie Kim, engineer Blake Lampkin, and original music by Javier Cadre. And until next time, remember, the power is yours.